Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 343 by Thorkell's Beard. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Margaret, Janet, and Rudy for signing up already. This is a story of palace intrigue, of murder, and of atypical alopecia. And it all begins where these things usually do, with real estate transactions. An Englishman owned some lands in Ellsworth, which is in Cambridgeshire. And we don't know his name, nor do we know why he was executed by the king. What we do know, though, is that following the royal execution, this Englishman's lands didn't go to his heirs. Instead, they went to the king. And that's how Canute became a land magnate in Cambridgeshire. And that would be a positive turn for most of us. But Canute wasn't most of us. Canute didn't want lands in Cambridgeshire. After all, Cambridgeshire, during this period, was likely being ruled over by one of his chief men, Earl Thorkell the Tall of East Anglia. And as we've learned, Canute was a big believer in delegation. So his focus was on Greater Wessex. East Anglia was someone else's problem. And so... Canute decided to give the lands away, and we're told that he gave them to a man named Thorkell. But here's where it gets tricky. There are at least two known Thorkells during this period. There's Earl Thorkell the Tall of East Anglia, but there's also a lesser Thorkell who ruled over Herringworth. And because nothing's ever easy in the Middle Ages, we can't see for certain that Thorkell of Ellsworth was either of those two Thorkells. He might have even been a third Thorkell. We really don't know. But we can make an educated guess. And my guess is that Ellsworth was given to one of the known Thorkells, specifically to Thorkell the Tall. And by the time I'm done telling you the story, hopefully you'll understand why. And we begin with the geographical evidence. Cambridgeshire often fell under the dominion of East Anglia, which, as you know, was governed by Thorkell the Tall. The other Thorkell held power over Herringworth, which was about 40 miles away. And that means that administering Ellsworth would have been quite the trek for Thorkell of Herringworth. Furthermore, his lands were linked to Northampton, which tended to either fall under the dominion of Mercia or the five boroughs, but not under East Anglia. So, unless the borders shimmied quite a bit, Granting Ellsworth, which was within East Anglian borders, to Thorkell of Herringworth, who governed lands that were likely in Mercian borders, would have stuck Thorkell of Herringworth serving two masters. And given how skillfully Canute dealt with delegation, it seems strange to me that he would have intentionally created a situation where that would have been undermined. Though to be fair, a counterpoint that some scholars make is that Thorkell of Herringworth's wife was seen controlling lands at Sawtree, but Sawtree itself was 20 miles to the north of Ellsworth, which placed it fairly close to the modern boundary of Cambridgeshire. But then again, to get to Ellsworth from Sawtree, you'd have to go through Huntingdon. So it's not like Ellsworth was right in her backyard either. So, just based on the lands, this is a sticky situation, and it's hard to know precisely which Thorkell it was. Fortunately for us, though, this story doesn't stop with the lands. We still have the murder, the intrigue, and the hair loss that'll help us understand what's going on. 
But for clarity, as I tell the rest of this story, I'm going to be using everyone's titles. When you hear Thorkel the Tall, that's because the record says Thorkel the Tall. When you hear Thorkel of Herringworth, that's who I'm talking about there. And when you just hear Thorkel, that's because the record isn't clear which Thorkel it was. So, in 1019 or 1020, Knut sent a letter to the people of England. Now, you'll remember that Knut was in Denmark at this time, so scholars widely believe that he wrote this letter from there. And it's also generally believed that while this letter was addressed to the people of England, and its contents amount to a manifesto of Knut's theory of rule, the true intended recipient of the letter was Earl Thorkell the Tall. Thorkell the Tall was ruling England in Knut's stead during this period. He was Knut's second in command, and so Knut's statement on how he intended to rule the English were almost certainly instructions being relayed to him. Furthermore, Knut actually names Thorkell the Tall in the letter. Quote, If anyone, ecclesiastic or layman, Dane or Englishman, is so presumptuous as to defy God's law and my royal authority or the secular law, and he will not make amends and desist according to the direction of my bishops, I then pray and also command Earl Thorkell, if he can, to cause the evildoer to do right. And if he cannot then it is my will that with the power of us both, he shall destroy him in the land or drive him out of the land, whether he be of high or low rank, end quote. Now, the Earl Thorkell that Canute was speaking to was Thorkell the Tall. And a charitable reading of this statement is that Canute wants everyone to know that Thorkell the Tall is on the case and everyone is going to have a fair trial and justice will be served. And that is possible but there is another way to read it. And this is the way that some scholars have. Specifically, that Knut was passive-aggressively reminding Thorkel the Tall that he should really be listening to the bishops, that he should really be enforcing the king's justice, and that he really did need to enforce the law equally. And it is interesting that shortly after this letter was sent, Knut returned back to England. So that leaves you wondering, what might have gotten Canute so worried about the way that justice was being handled in England that he sent a letter like this and then came back shortly afterwards? Well, there's another story that comes out of 1020, and it's a story about Thorkell. Thorkell was a widower. His first wife had died shortly after giving birth to their son. This was a common tragedy that people faced, as childbirth is dangerous even with modern medicine, and the Anglo-Danes didn't have modern medicine. So Thorkell's wife was dead, but the child survived. And so for a short time, Thorkell was a single dad, but then he remarried and things began to improve. At least for Thorkell, they did. The zero-sum nature of 11th century noble life and the extreme downward social pressure that this economic and political structure placed on everyone but the king meant that his son's life didn't get better. Instead, it got a lot more precarious. And that's because the future inheritance of any children that were born by Thorkell and his new wife would be superseded by Thorkell's pre-existing son. So for the new wife, this boy was a tangible, living, breathing barrier to her children's security. And it probably didn't help that Thorkell was a busy man, and he spent quite a lot of time away from home tending to the king's business. And so, likely in 1019 or early 1020, during one of those absences, Thorkell's new wife was once again left home alone with her stepson. 
and in the inner quarters of her home, right next to the hall, she murdered the young boy. And so now she had the body of a child, of her husband's heir, right there in her home. So she needed to get rid of this quickly. She also needed someone she could keep quiet. Basically, she needed someone so vulnerable that this person would have no other option but to help. So she found an old impoverished woman. And she told her to get rid of the body and to keep her mouth shut. And if she did, the old woman would be well compensated. The old lady had few options in life, and even less social clout to refuse such a demand. So she agreed. I mean, what else was the poor woman going to do? Refuse? The noble lady had already killed at least one other person. And that was a fellow nobleman. What would stop her from killing an old lady? So they took the body to Lulworth Meadow, which was just next to Ellsworth. And there it was buried. And once the body was buried and the murder was concealed, the old woman turned to Thorkell's wife and sought payment. And Thorkell's wife refused. She was highborn. She was a lady. Who would believe this old peasant woman over her? Especially with such an outlandish tale. Remember, in the medieval way of understanding things, the rich weren't just rich. They were considered to be spiritually and morally superior. They were brought to power through the will of God himself. So Thorkell's wife refused to pay and went about her business. But what she failed to realize and what the wealthy often tend to forget, is that in a downwardly mobile society where social interactions are zero-sum, the people on the very bottom have nothing to lose. So the old lady went straight to Bishop Athelrich, and she told him everything. And it was a convincing tale. Not only did she know the details, which included where the body was buried, but she also had no motivation to lie. Furthermore, the boy was dead. That part was uncontested. The child was definitely dead, and he had died while Thorkell was out of town and he was home alone with Thorkell's new wife. So, the bishop summoned Thorkell to sort it out. And Thorkell, believing that his wife was innocent, ignored the summons, which apparently he was powerful enough to be able to do. So the bishop summoned Thorkell again. And again, he was a no-show. The bishop summoned Thorkell a third time, and this time, he didn't show up. It wasn't until King Canute was informed about the situation that in 1020, Thorkell finally answered the summons. Which means that Thorkell didn't answer the bishop's summons until after Canute's letter that spoke specifically to Thorkell the Tall, talking about helping the bishops enforce the law, and after Canute quickly sailed home from Denmark. To say the timing here is suspect is an understatement. But at least Thorkell responded to the demand this time. And he came with 11 men who would act as his oath helpers. And his wife, who was also summoned, came with 11 women who would act as her oath helpers. These were people who would be duty-bound to make sure that justice would be served. So, you know, they'd keep Thorkell and his wife from once again bailing on the proceedings. And there were a lot of them on hand to deal with it. And so the couple were brought to an ecclesiastical assembly at Lulworth Meadow, the site of the burial. And Bishop Athelrich, wanting to make sure that the trial was right and proper, instructed Abbot Athelstan to bring the most precious relics that were housed at Ramsey Abbey. Because, you know, who needs a jury when you've got a dead guy's finger bones, am I right? 
And so, once the bishop, the abbot, Thorkell, his wife, Thorkell's oath keepers, his wife's oath keepers, the various witnesses, the high-ranked officials, and of course all the spooky body parts and other accessories were assembled together, it was now time to take oaths and provide an accounting of what happened. And all of a sudden, Thorkell intervened. He didn't want his wife to take that oath. Instead, he stated that he had no knowledge of any alleged murder of his son, and also that his wife was innocent. And he swore all of this on his beard. To emphasize this point, he yanked on his beard. And it came off. And times being what they were, the church authorities didn't need any more evidence than this. The beard proved that Thor Kelly committed perjury. And then the trial just stopped. Thorkell's wife didn't have to testify. She wasn't convicted of murder. And Thorkell wasn't even convicted of perjury. Instead, Thorkell granted his lands at Ellsworth to Bishop Athelrich, who then gave them to Ramsey Abbey. And that was the end of it. So that's the story. And it's a lot to take in, so let's break it down a little. To begin with, that bit about Thorkell's beard reads a bit like a fairy tale. So unless he'd been recently using Diva Curl, that is probably exactly what it is. Just a literary flourish invented by a storyteller or a scribe that was put in after the event. To quickly explain why they knew that Thorkell was lying through his teeth. And to be fair, he swore on his beard and so God struck the hair right off his face is a great punchline. It makes this way more fun to tell around the fireplace, because otherwise you're just dealing with a grim tale of child murder and real estate corruption. However, the rest of the story isn't much of a surprise for English life during this period. And the fact that Thorkell and his wife faced no punishment from the secular authorities, despite the perjury and the murder, suggests that the secular authorities were reluctant to punish them. And the secular authorities in this case were, of course, the king's officers, people who served Canute, and after Canute, they served as second-in-command, Thorkell the Tall. And if this Thorkell was Thorkell the Tall, could you imagine the absolute shitstorm that Canute would have faced if he tried to arrest the couple? This guy was one of his fiercest commanders. He'd already had experience ruling most of England. He personally governed a huge portion of England, being the elderman of East Anglia. Oh, and also... He was a Yom's Viking. Nobody in their right mind was going to touch that. So yeah, better just give them a slap on the wrist and let the church take a minor landholding from them. So this is why I think Thorkel the Tall's wife probably killed his son and then strong-armed an old lady into hiding the body, stiffed her when the bill came due, and then in the end, kind of got away with it. But the story doesn't stop there. Thorkell the Tall wasn't just some rando who Canute had elevated. He wasn't even just some figure high up with the Vikings. He was a nobleman who had a lot of clout in Skuana. And at this time, Skuana was a highly profitable colony of Denmark. And they weren't exactly thrilled about that whole colony part. If Skuana went off, it would be a huge financial headache for Canute's burgeoning empire that now spanned the North Sea. It would also threaten to kick up massive political problems, perhaps even starting a civil war. And even if we're looking at this in the best light possible, and we assume that Thorkell the Tall wasn't the same man as Thorkell the Newly Beardless, Knut still had plenty of reasons to worry about his Yom's Viking buddy. And that's because Thorkell the Tall had shown himself to be a man of shifting loyalties. 
He'd switched sides multiple times in England alone. And while he had enjoyed being Canute's right-hand man for quite some time, becoming the second most powerful man in England, if Canute's letter is what it appears to have been, this situation might have been changing. He'd been put in power, and he'd failed to rise to the challenge in a manner that pleased the king. And he failed so badly that the king talked about it in an open letter to the English. That's bad. And as we've seen throughout this series, when a chief counselor of the king falls out of favor, that fall can be precipitous. And thanks to the nature of medieval life and power structures, the threat of that fall can also inspire a few rebellious thoughts. Making matters worse, we have Scandinavian sources that tell us that Thorkell up and married the daughter of Athelred. Now, the Scandinavian sources also tell us that she was the widow of Ulfgell Snelling, which is impossible because he didn't marry a daughter of Athelred. But Edric Streona did. And in 1017, Edric Streona left a widow, which meant she was available for remarriage. And given the respective stations and influence of Ulfgell and Edric, it isn't impossible that the Scandinavians simply mistook one for the other and thought certainly Ulfgell must have been the one who married Athelred's daughter, since Ulfgell was a lot more famous in Scandinavia than Edric. So, assuming the sources are correct, that means that Thorkell the Tall had at least a year acting as a regent in England. He also had a lot of clout in a wealthy and rebellious region in Scandinavia. He controlled the sizable territory of East Anglia outright, and he'd likely settled it with most of his loyal followers, just as Canute had done with Wessex. Thorkell the Tall was also closely linked with the deadly Yams Vikings, and he was also a gifted, experienced, and famous warrior who had shown time and time again that he was capable of raising large armies whenever he needed to. And on top of that, unlike Canute, apparently he was also married to a member of the House of Wessex. There's also the issue of Earl Godwin. Canute was placing increasing amount of trust in him, and he was beginning to look like the new court favorite, and that fact probably didn't sit all that well with Thorkell the Tall. And then on top of it all, you have the possibility that he was in conflict with Canute over a murder in Ellsworth. Basically, things weren't looking good here, and Thorkell the Tall was looking more and more like a liability. And right at about this point, Eric Lathier, the Earl of Northumbria and trusted advisor of King Canute, died. Eric had been at Canute's side since the earliest moments of the conquest of England. In fact, it was Eric's support of Canute in Denmark that gave him the social capital necessary to draw those crucial first few ships to his banner. And his support when Canute had taken the throne was just as crucial, which is probably why the king granted him such an influential and militarily powerful earldom. But Eric was also old. And Norse accounts tell us that while he was either preparing for a pilgrimage or already on a pilgrimage, he fell ill and he needed surgery. And then he bled out during the procedure. Eric was a major pillar of Canute's conquest. And with him gone, Canute's grip on England was weakening. And at this point, historian Freeman suggests that Thorkell might have attempted to enact a coup, but he failed. Now, just like during the Age of Athelred, the accounts get really quiet when discussing the fall of prominent members of the establishment. In fact, all we're directly told is that on November 11th of 1021, Thorkell the Tall was outlawed by Canute. 
The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes it like this. Quote, 1021. This year, King Canute at Martinmas outlawed Earl Thorkell. End quote. Now, in the following year, we have another entry, and in it, we learn not only that Bishop Athelnoth traveled to Rome, but we also are told what he wore when he was in Rome and how he had a really nice party with a pope. We get a lot of detail there, but as for Canute's former BFF being outlawed, not one scrap of detail. These scribes are going to be the literal death of me. But thankfully, we've got John of Worcester, and while he isn't a contemporary record, he's writing close enough in time that he could have been relying on oral histories. And he says that it wasn't just Thorkell who was exiled. It was also his wife. And one source even claims that when Thorkell the Tall went into exile to Denmark, he went with just six ships of supporters, which certainly sounds like he lost a serious amount of standing in a very short amount of time. And not only that, but were told that he was greeted with suspicion in Denmark because they feared that he would cause internal strife there, which sounds very much like a failed rebel. But just because Thorkell the Tall was kicked out of England didn't mean that Canute's troubles were over. There were still likely a large number of powerful figures in East Anglia who remained loyal to Thorkell, as he would have been the one who placed them in their positions. So now, that region was a potential powder keg of rebellion. And meanwhile, Thorkell the Tall was back in Scandinavia, a place where he could recoup, rebuild, and potentially start to move against the king again. Especially considering that Canute was currently an absentee king. And better yet, Skawana in particular was probably quite aligned with Thorkell's ambitions. With friends like these, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, all over the place, really. And you can find links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah.